You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion across the country. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky, and I'm excited to welcome Dr. Lauren Franz to, wel- to talk with us about the incredible impact early intervention can have on the lives of autistic children. Dr. Franz leads the dissemination and outreach core through Duke's Autism Center of Excellence. Her research at Duke focuses on improving access to evidence-based services and supports neurodiverse communities. I'm excited to chat with you today about early access to intervention. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's great to be here with you all. So Lauren, as, as you know, April is World Autism Month. And you have that background to have a more global perspective. I'd love to hear just through your work with UNICEF and just your your broad-based background, is there anything you want the world to know about autism? Sure. So thanks for that question, Jeff. It's certainly a big question. Um, So, you know, a couple things that um, I'd like to share. Folks on this podcast may already be aware that autism is actually a pretty common condition. You know, many parts of the world, we don't have great statistics um, on you know prevalence, but in the United States, we estimate that approximately one in 44 children are diagnosed with autism and boys are at the moment four times more likely to receive an autism diagnosis than girls. Um, you know, autism is a neurodevelopmental condition um, and behaviors that characterize autism Uh, can be identified early in childhood. Something else that I like sort of touching on is that every autistic person is unique, you know, with this unique set of strengths and also areas where they may need sort of individual supports to reach their uh, individual potential. Um, There's no one-size-fits-all support or service that can meet the needs of autistic people. So services and supports really should be individualized to meet unique child and family needs. Uh, Another area thinking about World Autism uh, Day is that many places around the world um, and also many communities here in the United States, um, you know, there are folks that actually have no access to services and supports that could improve quality of life of autistic people. So while we have this growing evidence base demonstrating that certain supports and services improve things like language, cognition, adaptive functioning. You know, these services are actually not available to most people in the world. And so there we have this sort of large gap between what we know best practices are um, and, you know, what communities actually have access to. But I think there is some good news. So you know, firstly, I think people are beginning to ask questions around why these service access gaps actually exist in the first place. And then secondly, what can be done to sort of bridge these research to practice gaps? And I think we're going to get into some of some of that conversation today. Yeah, no, we definitely will. And, and one of the things that I think is a positive through this is that you used to see almost an artificial uh, prevalence rate gap because people couldn't get access to even diagnostics um, across different underserved populations. And at least in certain communities within the U.S., that's starting to shrink is that you're starting to see the prevalence rates across cultures start to normalize a little bit. 
But there is that access to care issue. And there's also an access to care issue as, as you're trying to get younger kids into services and into the process. And there's a huge pig in the python for older kids right now. And I'd like to talk about all of that as we go on. But before we go there, this is a passion-driven field. Autism itself is that when you talk to people is that they're, they're connected to the, the child, they're connected to the family, they're connected to the adult with autism. Um, and that's oftentimes how they realize that this is where I wanna be, this is where I want my research to be, this is where I want my practice to be. So how did you get involved with this field? So in medical school, um, I was pretty early early on in my training drawn to pediatrics and drawn to psychiatry. So for me, specializing in the field of child and adolescent psychiatry was a sort of natural fit. And I've always been really fascinated by young kids and the tremendous developmental potential that they have. Um, and also the, the potential that uh, those closest to them have, meaning their parents or their caregivers to sort of support their growth and development. And, you know, for me, working with young kids in the context of a family environment is just such an exciting place to be. And if we're really able to join families in their goals for their children, we can make this sort of tremendous impact. Um, and through the training, I've been fortunate enough um, in the work that I do here at Duke to train as a trainer in the Early Start Denver model, which is one of the evidence-based early autism interventions, where we actually coach caregivers on strategies to support their child's growth and uh, sort of social communication skills. And in the role of caregiver coach, you know, I've worked with many families and I've just really experienced um, sort of the impact of caregivers uh, learning these types of strategies and how it can impact their child's growth and development. Yeah, and most often is that the empowerment of a family is probably the best way to be able to empower the child. So I love the way that you're framing this and that the way that you're working through uh, not only the training, but also the research that you're putting through. Um, and I'd love to set the stage right now. It's So you said, um, and this is a, a mythical situation, but it happens way too frequently. You have a child right now that maybe the parent is starting to get concerned about. The child might be 18 months old. In order for them to get access to care right now, oftentimes they're going through a lot of steps in that process. Those steps um, could be talking with a pediatrician. The pediatrician is not quite understanding all of the nuances, so sends that child on to a psychologist. That's another long wait and unfortunately, it's extremely long at this time to be able to get into a psychologist in many areas. So then they wait for that. Then there is a whole battery of assessments that are occurring, and then they get their report back. From the time the child parent, their child's parents have that concern to getting a report back is oftentimes nine months to a year. Um, and then they have to find a, a treatment provider afterwards, which then puts it off a little bit further. What is the biggest concern that you have for that child that that maybe 18 months ago at this point probably would have benefited from at least some some support, some family training, some intensive care, whatever support was needed for that child? What is your biggest concern about that gap right now and what that might do to the child long term? Um, so. 
the, the Lancet Commission has just released a report on the future of care and clinical research in autism. And it's a pretty dense report, but some sort of key take home messages um, that just, uh, you know, um, underline the importance of getting connected early is that we really should be connecting families with services and supports as soon as signs of autism are identified. Um, and importantly, no one, you know, regardless of where they live or what resources they have available to them, should have to wait for extended periods of time, right, to start services that can support child and family quality of life. And, you know, I think that uh, there are, you know, many co-occurring conditions with autism. Um, you know, it can impact sleep, not just child sleep, but family sleep. You know, there can be GI-related um, issues going on. And, you know, co-occurring conditions such as ADHD and anxiety, right, are also pretty common. Um, and so it's not just it's not just connecting children and families with supports and services that can support, um, you know, uh, social communication development, but it's also these sort of co-occurring conditions, right? That could be medical or, you know, mental health related. That 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 if left unsupported and unrecognized and untreated, can really impact an individual and their family's quality of life. And that interdisciplinary work, especially for something like autism, which is complex, um, is it's extremely important. And, and I think that that you're right, is that oftentimes we're talking about that gap to service for just the behavioral health side or the parent support or the social component. But, you know, there is that other piece to it. And um, whether that's what's going on in a lot of medical programs right now, where they're increasing the, the residency requirements for pediatricians to really understand autism, or the maybe the push to re-specialize a little bit more on the developmental component, I think all of that is going to be important. And then integrating those steps. So maybe, maybe you can give us a little bit of a, of a case study um, or just a, a parent perspective of what that looks like, what that feels like when they do get it right. And maybe we can compare that to what happens potentially if that delay is there and that child develops um, coping mechanisms that maybe aren't helping them to be empowered or the family feels those stressors or they develop medical conditions. And maybe we can look at both ends. But let's start with that success story. What does that look like right now? Sure. So I actually have uh, two brief stories um, that that I would like to share if, if it's possible. Um, both are kids that I saw in in our clinic um, a couple of years back. The, the first um, is a story about a little mom and uh, excuse me, a little boy and her, and his mom, who uh, you know we 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 did the the autism sort of diagnostic workup and I offered. Um, you know, uh, uh, intervention, which which is based on the early start Denver model to this little boy as mom was working to get him connected with community supports. And because of his age, those were mostly related to sort of pre, uh, uh, appropriate educational preschool supports. Um, and, you know, when I first met this little boy, um, he had no language and he would have many, many complicated disruptive tantrums a day. Um, and, you know, um, over the weeks of me working with him with, you know, using a low intensity approach, which is sort of a one hour a week, 
you know, 12 week option. So that's low intensity where I was giving, you know, working directly with him. Mom was in the room. She was watching the, the intervention strategies that I was using. He was able to develop some language, right? And gestures where he could start to communicate what he needed, right? So if he saw a toy that he wanted, he could start using some words and pointing to what 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 he what he wanted. If he wanted a specific snack, he could communicate that. If he was thirsty, he could let people around him know what he needed. And you know, as I worked with him and his mom um, over the weeks, his tantrums became less and less and less frequent, and his words and gestures and his ability to communicate became more and more and more obvious, right? And I remember when I was finishing, it was sort of the last session I had with his family and I was waiting in the waiting room and I could hear mom in, in, in the restroom changing his diaper. And I could actually hear that she had picked up on some of the strategies that I was using with him. And um, it just gave me sort of this, this joyous feeling of, you know, like I know that our time together has ended. This has been a bridge to getting, you know, more comprehensive wraparound services. But mom has also, you know, learned some strategies that will continue to support um, the, the development of language and gestures in, in her young child to get her child's needs met. And I have another one quickly, if that's okay. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and and just on that first story, sure, is that, yeah. that practice effect and, and how you're able to be able to give the parents a way to be able to engage with their child is that they are going to continue to practice those skills more and more frequently, the more that they contact success. So it doesn't surprise me that, you know, the family sees it working. They're seeing small gains and those gains can become large over time if they can continue to process with the child and give them opportunities. So I, those sorts of stories, it, it's as much as it is the child being able to develop the language and be able to engage more in the world. I love hearing the family side of that as well, because you see the excitement for them as far as I can make an impact in my child's life. So I think that that story touches touches my heart as well. But let's hear let's hear that second story. Yeah, and so and just related to, to that. So this 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 idea of caregiver competence and this feeling of I can do it, right? It's incredibly powerful. Um, and that's something that caregiver coaching, for example, can really support and, and nurture. So it's very, very key, right, to this kind of work. Um, so the other story briefly, again, was a little kid I saw in our clinic a few years back. And mom actually was a preschool teacher. So she was pretty skilled up, right, with child cognitive development. And this little boy actually had um, hyperlexia. So he he was he had very advanced reading skills and abilities which were sort of beyond what would be expected for his chronological age so a definite area of strength but you know and at the same time you know he preferred to play alone you know he seldom approached mom or other people to ask for help even if he really needed it and you know he was he was inclined not to sort of share things with other people so not to share his interests not to sort of share things that were going on and you know mom came in and this was one of her goals of coaching you know how do i join with my child how do i you know become part of his interests so that's what we focused on in our coaching you know and you know what what i sort of supported her in doing was changing her orientation a bit to really you know follow her child's lead 
imitate what he was doing, position herself in a way that she could really get into her spotlight of attention pretty easily. And, you know, for her to be positive interactions, to use gestures. And just by her doing these simple behaviors, again, with a very low intensity coaching, so like one hour a week, 12 sessions, that's low intensity, you know, she was able to sort of get in there, right, and join with her child. And her child over time, both in the coaching and the work that she was doing at home with him and the daily interactions, um, uh, she was able to sort of be included right, in his interests and really sort of join him, um, which which was lovely to see. Uh, no, uh, uh, bravo to you on that, by the way. <laughs> the, the, I, right now, I mean, being that we're in World Autism Month, it's it's that it's that conversation right now between, you know, what is, where's the treatment? Where's the acceptance? And I think this is a really good story is that, um, and I've seen it with children with hyperlexia is that oftentimes we try and change the way they interact or change their communication style. And I had a child at one point where I watched them trying to communicate with me and they, they were pointing rapidly all over the place, but they were pointing at letters. And when you actually stop to slow it down, that child was actually writing to me and I had absolutely no clue what they were trying to communicate. And it's it's interesting when you kind of take a step back and realize that communication is different across a whole variety of people, neurodiverse people maybe communicate with less body language at times. Maybe they communicate in, in different ways that are easier. Um, and the same for people that are, um, I guess neurotypical is that they find ways to communicate that is effective for them. And for this child, it was like, why am I changing all of that? Why don't I complement it? Why don't I find a way to be able to make it more beneficial? But um, what you did there by empowering the family to understand the strength of their child and to be able to connect around that, that's exactly what good treatment is across the whole treatment methodology. It's we have to find a way that we connect with the child. We have to find a way to empower them to use their skills. But you did that with a parent training session, and that parent's going to carry that over forever. So that's that is that is really cool to be able to see that that's happening in that model of care. Um, so I, I want to get back to we're talking about early intervention. We're talking about getting children and parents access to care quickly. So what needs to happen right now in our community? to make sure that these kids are getting access to care? Where are these blocks occurring that are causing us not to get kids into treatment? Yeah, so as you mentioned earlier, Jeff, um, and I completely agree with you, you know, getting a diagnosis can take a while, right? Depending on where you live, um, wait lists for diagnosis can be long, you know, six months to a year. That's something that we, we sort of regularly hear about. And, you know, unfortunately, a formal diagnosis is sometimes needed, right? It's sort of a requirement for accessing autism-specific services and supports. And personally, I would argue that that's just not acceptable, you know, um, from, from when this, there's the sort of identification of concern or developmental differences. Um, you know, waiting for a formal diagnosis for anything to be happening, right? I just find that unacceptable. And so, you know, um, typically uh, children under three 
are referred to local infant toddler programs, right, after a positive developmental screen or after a positive autism screen or, you know, even independent of screening, if parents have developmental concerns, that's sort of what should be happening, referral to a local infant toddler program. And, you know, what ideally needs to be happening is while we're waiting for a formal diagnosis, uh, community-based services should be providing evidence-based care that can continue to support child developmental growth, right? Ideally, through infant-toddler programs or preschool settings where, where children are, right, where families are in our community. And, you know, there are certainly growing it's sort of a growing area of emphasis, right? So initiatives underway to uh, train, for example, infant toddler program staff in naturalistic developmental behavioral intervention strategies, right? Which is a class of evidence-based intervention um, that are made up of many different types. The early Sardin for model is one. Um, but, you know, that's really the way for us to improve access to services, to sort of understand where families are, where children are while they're waiting and skill up, you know, the people who are interacting and supporting families, right, while they're waiting for, for services. And so, so, the, so, the, so these strategies are, are not difficult, you know, they're things like you know, being face to face with your child, you know, using positive affect and animation, modeling developmentally appropriate language, right, being sensitive and responsive to child communication attempts. So these are not difficult strategies, but it's just making sure the right people have them. No, absolutely. And and I, I couldn't agree more with the fact that there is a, there's an inherent breakdown right now between what's the right care versus what are the hoops that you have to go through. And I think that the idea that we have to wait for a formal diagnosis for children that are obviously at risk to receive a treatment that's going to be beneficial for them, regardless, is a barrier that either through regulation or through insurance probably needs to be fought. Um, but also is that as, as a community of diagnosticians is that we need to look at how do we how do we emphasize uh, access to care or, or are there efficiencies that we can look at to be able to help at the same time? And I believe that you're involved with some research on this as far as screeners or um, and, and at the Duke uh, Center of Excellence is that they're looking to try and figure out, are there ways that we could make this process a little bit more efficient to get children into care through the diagnostic process. Um, can you expand on some of that? Sure. You know, so um, the the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, recommends universal uh, screening for autism. You know, either through sort of this combination of a sort of general developmental surveillance. Um, developmental screening and then sort of standardized autism specific screening that uh, should be occurring per recommendation at 18 and 24 months. Um, and then, you know, if there are behavioral concerns that pop up, then children should be, uh, you know, referred for a comprehensive diagnostic assessment, which has been sort of proved to be reliable and valid if delivered by a, a sort of experienced professional by the age of two. Um, but, you know, we've already referenced that um, there are, you know, multiple hoops, right, that families have to go through to, to, to um, uh, 
at, at each of those stages, right? Whether it's developmental surveillance or autism screening or sort of the diagnostic process. And, you know, there certainly are efforts underway to um, think through our traditional screening approach, right? Which often is sort of a pen and paper based approach, um, which is highly problematic because just in terms of the variation and how it's implemented in each site, right? Um, and it's also problematic because a lot of these screening and diagnostic approaches have been developed on non-representative samples, right? Mostly white, you know, English speaking, uh, upper middle income families, right? And, you know, we live in such a different society, right? Which is diverse, different cultures, different languages, you know, um, different ways of parents reporting symptoms. So, you know, I think not just the work that we're doing at our center, but other areas are doing it as well, is thinking about, is there a way of moving away from the sort of paper and pencil checklist screening to more objective measures, right? Where, you know, we could be using digital screening, you know, through fancy things like computer vision analysis to assess how, you know, how much social versus non-social stimuli a child is attending to when they are presented with 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 um, video material, for example. And so, you know, that's 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 an area in our center that's being led by Jerry Dawson and Guillermo Sapiro, where we are um, validating uh, a screening app called the Sense to Know app, um, where uh, we're sort of assessing how that type of app can uh, do compared to sort of traditional screening measures and whether it can do a better job um, at uh, picking up um, a wider variety of children at an earlier age than traditional screening approaches do. And I, I totally appreciate the innovation that you all have been a part of. Um, and I think that uh, during the time of COVID is that we all had to be innovative. We all had to kind of think through how to be able to leverage some technology. And during that time period, one of the things that, that we saw both on the treatment delivery, because you couldn't necessarily be with the family, but also on the diagnostic end is that we learned that, hey, we have to figure out a way to be able to get people access to care through virtual models, through the components like that, is that we learned technology could be a benefit for our field. Um, and I actually have two questions on this. One of which is, is that, I mean, Duke is in is in a state where there there is a, a shortfall of diagnosticians focusing on autism. There's a lot of clinical psychologists, but not a lot that are just heavily focused on being able to work with younger children and understanding that diagnosis. And they've invested in, um, I guess leveraging what's called the psychology uh, compact, the inter-jurisdictional inter compact to allow for providers to work across state grounds, but that leverages technology. And is that is that something that you see going forward in the future where we're gonna say, you know, we can use this digital model to increase our capacity of clinicians in states that maybe just don't have as much or in underserved areas, rural communities, Areas like that where people don't have access, is that something where the field is going? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I'll try to answer it <laughs> as best I can. So, you know, I think, it, you know, I'm, I'm in North Carolina, that's where Duke is, and North Carolina is a majority rural state. The majority of our population live in areas that are considered rural. 
you know, we have, like many other places, had to think very creatively during COVID, right? Not just in terms of how do we continue to deliver clinical care, but how do we keep research going? You know, we were seeing a lot of people in person. How do we suddenly transition that, you know, to to remote remote care? Um, you know, something that we've had to think about is. Um, in terms of the adaptations we've made is around the digital divide. Uh, because, you know, if I think of our majority rural states here in North Carolina, you know, majority of rural areas don't have access to broadband internet, right? And a lot of our treatment approaches and our diagnostic approaches rely on what we call synchronous uh, telehealth, right? So live coaching or live sort of diagnostic assessments, right? But if 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 that sort of now becomes our standard of care, um, and you know, as 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 COVID sort of hopefully goes into the background, but we keep uh, our part, you know part of our telehealth approach, but we're just making that um, telehealth where we are providing synchronous live diagnostic assessments and coaching. Again, we're going to be exacerbating the disparities, right, that impact a lot of our communities. So, you know, what we've really had to think about is um, if we're making adaptations to our coaching, for example, just as important about as, as thinking about, fine, we'll just transition to live telehealth coaching through Zoom. Um, we also need to think about doing this in an asynchronous fashion, right, where ahead of time we can provide caregivers support to maybe uh, record a caregiver child interaction and then we can give coaching over the phone right instead of doing it live so you know I, I um I do think that COVID has made us innovate and we have really had to think outside of the box and some of those innovations should stick because um I think that they have increased access to care and at the same time we need to be careful that we don't um exacerbate you know existing disparities with access to internet services excellent thoughts on that I I and I've heard from others is that you know the asynchronous part, the store and forward, the being able to catch things in the natural environment is at times even more beneficial than trying to see it all in a very short visit is that you get the real sample of what that child is doing, how they're engaging, how the behaviors are actually interfering. You get to see it in their environment, which I, as a clinician, I could say, I'd love to have that access. I'd love to have all that information because it helps, but it must also help on that parent coaching part where it's helping them they are filming an incident that they are obviously trying to figure out or struggling through and being able to sit down with them point out key features help them to know at the moment you know this is where you might try this or you know you could try and incorporate these things in the environment next time or you could change the trajectory of this engagement by doing that. That sounds like the the future should be kind of more now <laughs> in how we're approaching it, because it seems logical to me at times. Mm -hmm. But and I appreciate the insight that you have on that. So what what is your hopes for for the future? It sounds like you're wanting to be able to create more access and you're wanting to leverage a little bit more of the technological advances we have. But where, what are the ultimate hopes that you have for the future of autism care and where we're going? Um, so I think you've hit on them. You know, I have two main hopes. I've been transparent you know, from the beginning of our conversation. I think, firstly, 
We need to make best practices more accessible, affordable and available to those who would benefit from them. You know, we've touched on this issue of disparities, um, but, you know, there are there are well documented disparities in autism diagnosis that sort of persist, even if you sort of control for a family's socioeconomic status, you know. Um, just some some stats that I have here. So the CDC reports that white non-Hispanic children are 20% more likely to be identified as autistic. So so I have some statistics. So the, the CDC reports that white non-Hispanic children are 20% more likely to be identified as autistic than non-Hispanic African-American children and 50% more likely to be identified as autistic than Hispanic or Latinx children, right? So, you know, for culturally and linguistically diverse families, we also know that if they, even if they receive an autism diagnosis, early, um, the quality of services that they receive are less, you know. So, so, that's, so that's certainly one area of hope that I have, that we do a much better job in equitable dissemination of best practices. You know, I think the second area that we haven't touched on, but for me it's important that, that, that we mention it, is, you know, taking steps to promote neurodiversity affirming early intervention practices. Something that we're hearing a lot more um, in the early intervention space is that parents or caregivers are beginning to express some concerns and reservations about enrolling their child in early intervention programs um, because, you know, they voice the concerns that they don't they are concerned that these programs aren't necessarily valuing neurodiversity and that they may be prioritizing changing their child's behavior to sort of fit with more neurotypical norms. Um, so, you know, one way to think about beginning to bridge that gap is really moving towards a more participatory research approach where you are you know, actively including various stakeholder groups in uh, refining, you know, early intervention practices and including autistic self-advocates, for example, in, in the process of intervention development, right? And I think, you know, that's another area that's beginning and it's only going to sort of increase. And, and I'm glad that those conversations are occurring, um, and I'm and I'm glad that it's it's going through all levels of care, and and the families are driving that conversation. Um, and ultimately, I think any good practice would be looking at I'm empowering somebody, I'm helping them to be able to have the skills to do what they want to do, versus trying to change who they are through that process. And I, I think that's for somebody who's neurodiverse or neurotypical, is that we're always looking at what can I do to strengthen myself and empower myself and get to that next goal that I'm wanting to achieve? And we have to look at what are the core roots of that. And I think the more that we realize that the treatment for a child who's neuro neurodiverse should be no different conceptually as helping a neurotypical child attain their goals is that we have to break it down to what's important in their life. So I, I'm glad that you're starting these discussions and including all the stakeholders in it, because that's the only way to really get to a, a, a real suitable solution. Um, on the equitable decision making, I think, and, and you have the opportunity because you, you're involved in the research on this. Um, is there a, a core problem in the fact that we don't have enough clinicians right now representing all these cultures? Do we need to, as an industry of providers, recruit and, and invest more in clinicians of a variety of different cultures to be able to broaden our own perspectives as clinicians? 
Absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, I think just thinking of the 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 change in prioritization of this exact issue that we've experienced, I think, for the past year and a half, two years at Duke, and that this has always been something that's been recognized and spoken about, but I think that there's a lot of momentum around um, recognizing the importance of recruiting a more diverse workforce. And, you know, also a, a neurodiverse workforce, <laughs> um, you know, thinking about, um, the 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 various sort of stakeholders and the 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 research to practice gaps and really thinking about why they're there and part of it is because our workforce isn't isn't necessarily diverse right um so you know that's definitely an area that we're focusing on quite heavily here at duke i focus on as the person that leads our dissemination and outreach core um just the incredible importance of revamping and expanding you know who's included in these types of conversations and that's definitely which types of clinicians are are we are we training right um for 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 the future of clinical care and autism so right now it sounds like duke is running the gamut on their research <laughs> but looking at really that access to quality care parent coaching being able to look at where our gaps are in quality of care which at times is is the fact that we're not diverse enough as a workforce or we're not reaching and understanding every population that we're working with are there other components to research that they that are exciting for you right now where you see that you know i hope that somebody's going to tackle this next and then also is where can we access the research from duke where can people go out and, and look and see what's on the horizon because that's going to guide our field in the future yeah so we've spoken a bit about um uh, the importance of uh, participatory research in in terms of how that's going to revolutionize from my perspective uh, you know, uh, the intervention, the screening and the diagnostic tools that, that, that are being developed. And that means including various stakeholders early and longitudinally in the research process to make sure that what is being uh, the product, right, is acceptable to the community, right? We haven't done a good job of that in autism research, but I do think that that's changing and it's going to really narrow our research to practice gap. Another sort of area of research that I find exciting and that we're involved in is using user-centered design principles to um, develop, you know, digital digital tools, right, um, that that, for example, can include a coaching app, right, a caregiver coaching app. Um, but again, the same principle of figuring out who your stakeholders are and including them iteratively in the design process, right, as you're making this caregiver coaching app that could, you know, be downloaded to a smartphone and help to sort of bridge that gap between concern or, you know, uh, um, developmental screen and access to care. Right. So, you know, I think that those two main areas for me are most exciting, participatory research and thinking about the digitization of medicine and the importance of user centered design in that process. Um, uh, I, and, and, you know, I look forward to seeing all of that come about and uh, whether it's a, a year down the line or you're currently pushing out the research is that it's challenging the field. It's challenging the way that we're thinking about things. But more importantly is that we talk about an autism community and it's finally putting all the stakeholders 
present and front and center to be making their own decisions. And the clinicians are there to be able to help support at times, provide some additional information, but ultimately are there as a vehicle to make sure the stakeholder's voice is being heard and that the that the decision-making and the research and the investment is going in the right place. So I appreciate what you're doing on that. And uh, Dr. Franz, thank you for taking the time today to come and chat with us. I'd love to give you just the floor right now, just to be able to talk once again to families about you know, the start of their journey and what they can be doing or what they can be thinking about or how they can best self-advocate through this process. So thank you, Jeff. Um, you know, as I said earlier, you know, we do have a growing evidence base that early intervention for autism can support growth in language, you know, can support growth in different types of communication skills, can support adaptive behaviours, you know, can also support relationship development, um, all those really important uh, developmental skills. And at the same time, I think it's important that we are transparent that there are some gaps, right, in what we know about early intervention. There are very few head-to-head -head comparison studies that have been done, um, you know, which means that we don't necessarily know which intervention approach is best. You know, and we also, there, there, there have been very few, what I would call community implementation trials that have been done. So, you know, we have evidence of what works in sort of best practice, but, you know, people live in communities and there are very few, for example, uh, big trials that have been done in infant toddler programs, right, of, of early intervention approaches. And sort of the other important gap is, um, we have very few sort of comparative studies where we say what amount of intervention is best, right? How many hours a week for how long, right? So there definitely are gaps in what we know. So what I really encourage families to do, you know, once they've received an autism diagnosis or, you know, when their developmental concerns that sort of speak to autism being a possibility, is that it's really important to try and speak to providers that you have access to and understand more about their approach, right? And then ask yourself questions about how does the approach that they're describing, you know, fit with me, fit with my family, and also very importantly, how does it fit with your child, right? Um, you know, does this program that's being proposed um, prioritize, you know, meaningful skill development? Is the intensity, meaning how much is delivered, does it actually fit my family and my child or is it too much or too little? You know, does the approach um, encourage a multidisciplinary, like multidisciplinary supports, right? And then very importantly, um, will you and your child actually be involved in uh, identification of treatment goals, right? So, you know, I just, that's, that's something that I really like being transparent about with families, about some important questions to ask when you're making decisions about best fit and early intervention. No, and, and I think uh, most families probably definitely appreciate just hearing the fact that they have choice in treatment and, and that they're a part of that decision. And depending on what model of care you're doing is that it, it does impact your life differently. It does impact um, every, every person in, in your family. Um, and just knowing which model of care is one that you're able to A, commit to, B, see that this is what I believe 
would be right for my particular child and my family. So having those conversations is important and, and bringing in a variety of voices to get there, whether that's your pediatrician, your psychologist, your speech therapist, your occupational therapist. I mean, you have so many people that could be contributing. So um, that I'm sure that every single family is very appreciative that, that you have those questions for them to be able to kind of start thinking through the process. But, well, thanks again, Dr. Franz. I think that this is this is uh, eye-opening again. I, I feel like I learn more by doing the podcast than anything else. So I appreciate you coming on to be able to chat with us today. Yeah, absolutely. And if folks are interested in finding out more about the work that we're doing at Duke, we have a, a website, the Duke Center for Autism and Brain Development. Um, you can find out more about studies that are ongoing. We have a research registry, a, you know, a newsletter. Um, so please feel free to visit our website to find out more about the work we're doing at Duke. And thank you so much, Jeff. This has been great. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.